0: Listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. Tennille, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started a podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this are we? No way. And even better, we get
1: to share all the experiences.
0: Ed Lee is a British-born snow sports commentator working for Ski Sunday at the BBC and the self-described Ron Burgundy of snowboarding and action sports. He talks to us today about the significance of the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games, pros and cons, and if they're still relevant in today's world of sports, we talk Southern Hemisphere snow athletes, European and New Zealand snow resorts, coming back from injury and creative and scandalous ways to pass the time in quarantine. Hey, Ed, how's it going?
1: Very well, thank you, Emma. Yourself?
0: Yes, really good. Where, where are you located at the moment?
1: Uh, I am in the kind of southern end of Switzerland in, the, in Larks the european head of like headquarters of freestyle i suppose you'd call it
2: so you um have met a couple of our australians over there they love Lux, our australians yes
1: yeah yeah there's, they face themselves, uh,
2: do they
1: yeah uh, yeah. uh valentino uh gazelle oh. is it was his birthday here yesterday so and i i think it was definitely a kind of pg-13 affair um <laughs> What is it? Is it seventeenth? Yeah, seventeen. 17th. Yeah,
2: yeah. Should be. It should be. But you know, I've got a seventeen-year-old too. Kill. <laughs> uh, we all but turn In 17.
1: Switzerland, he's legal. He's been legal to drink, uh, drink alcohol for a year now. So you're allowed he's to you drink beer that. and wine in bars at sixteen here. So
2: wow, no way. You know what? In all my travel over there, I never knew that because I've never really known to. Know that because I haven't had a daughter that young while I traveled, and also I was older than that, so that's really interesting. Does that how is that? Does that create randomness in or it's just their culture? So they
1: it means that, uh, I mean, I'm guessing we're all a similar age, it means that when you go into some bars, you feel like a grandparent, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, um, it's actually, I think that kind of. It depends, doesn't it? But that prohibition and the sort of Anglo-Saxon mentality of closing a pub at a certain time creates that rush on everything. And here there's sort of an endless stream of bars that you can keep going to. So in general, like this this town is full of young snowboarders and free skiers, yeah. but they, they all seem to prioritise getting on the mountain. There's an incredible work ethic here. And Val's at the forefront of that like you'll see them in the pipe from first thing like first lift if you want it is 7:30 goes up to the top of the first peak and you can just go and sit in the world's biggest half pipe and ride it in pristine condition because it's cut by the best pipe shaper in the world Jeremy Carpenter and I mean you see you can see firsthand there'll be 20 olympians on the hill here every wow. day through the winter and you just see them working. You can see what it takes to go to the Olympics. When you there a stay prior there.
2: is there a prior arrangement of who gets first in, best dressed, or you know, if you're if you're the number one in the world, does it matter? Is, is it a picking a pecking order, or it's get Not out there. At
1: all. It's like, and that's the thing in a pipe. Your run takes forty seconds, so there's plenty of time for everyone. Probably the the most intimidating part of it is that everyone's dads slash coaches. Uh, just hanging around on kind of golfing stools at the top. So if you if you kind of sidle over there and try and drop in unnoticed, some of the world's kind of most curated half-pipe riding eyes are watching over you. You can disappear. There's a run called P60, and it's, I'm guessing it's probably two and a half kilometres long, and it's all snow park. It changes every night. The shapers will go in and move the rails and features around, and you can disappear into that a bit more. But the yeah, the pipe—it takes a bit of stump to get in there. It's a pretty intimidating crew some days. I can
2: imagine. I don't oh. even go in the pipe at Perisher.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we should really pedigree at um, pedigree, pedigree Perisher. Like you got uh, Scotty James, Tora Bright, Val on any given day. Like that's that's no that's not to be laughed at. That's true. That's
0: true. <laughs> I really um tell everyone what, what you've been up to this year. Well, who you are, actually. Introduce yourself.
1: <laughs> okay. Um <clears throat> My name is Edley. I um some like I call myself kind of a snowboarding slash action sports rum burgundy. Um I talk <laughs> about action sports summer and winter. I'm a presenter, broadcaster and journalist um and in winters like this i'm pretty busy i have really i do a show for the bbc in the uk called ski sunday it's a bit like top gear It's seven o'clock for an hour on bbc2 and we cover anything and everything snowboarding and skiing and then when the olympic years roll around i do the commentary for the free skiing and snowboarding with a guy called tim warwood and anyone else who's any of the other British snowboarders who want to sit in the booth. I do the Paralympics and then I'll do sort of little events for Red Bull here and there things. I did a ski cross last week for them, but then I've got a really exciting job uh, next week. I've been invited to go and it's not live, but I do the sort of commentary now that the natural selection event has finished in Alaska, big back country sort of the pinnacle of backcountry snowboarding. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, start to finish, usually my winter's only northern hemisphere winter's only two two and a half months, but this winter it's been a full four with the Olympic and Paralympic schedule. Have yes. you been
0: over there without your family
1: the whole time? No, um, because the news. I live in. Oh, I didn't say that. I live in New Zealand. I married a Kiwi um, nice. a long time ago now, and we we live in Wanaka. So when I left New Zealand with no guarantees on whether I could get back into the country and knowing it was going to be a long winter, I thought let's all go. So signed yeah. the kids up for online school. And Mount Aspiring, the school down in Wanaka is super supportive of people going away. And that was, that was proved here in larks I'm not joking. There was probably a traveling party of over 30 free, young free skiers, snowboarders and coaches and parents <laughs> pretending that they were coming to chaperone and actually just ripping around.
2: <laughs> oh so good. So good. That's amazing.
1: It's pretty rad. Scene. Quite unusual.
2: So so they uh, so you got all your visas to go over there and just like holiday visas. Is that how it worked? From New Zealand yeah, you, you, to get in, get your holiday visa and they just went okay. And the kids got yeah, coached over
1: there and the you don't need a visa. You don't need even to apply. It's kind of visa waiver country, so you can go in. You've got three months. Um, we Um, So we just, you stroll in, get your COVID tests. We got a, when, when we first got here, it was still quite tight. There were a lot of restrictions. So the kids had laminates of their passports and their COVID passes. And you just show those, pull those out and go through restaurants, um, yeah. anywhere yeah. with public spaces. But that disappeared early February. And then it was all wide open. Mask wearing in bubbles and cable cars, but that was it, pretty much.
2: Yeah, wow. I was. They were really concerned at the start of the season, weren't they? That it would go back into lockdown again, like the French and the Italians. But obviously, that didn't happen. Thank goodness. It kind of just
1: yeah. They flowed. they let it run, and every. I mean, you look around, and it didn't come out until post Olympics. None of the teams or the athletes were talking about it. But December, January. It was touch and go for, I would say, 60% of the athletes going to Beijing as to whether they'd be clear. There was, I think it was World Cup in copper just before Christmas, and Omicron was surging then, and loads of them got it um, and were still kind of flick flacking on COVID tests right up until mid Jan. I know Tian Collins, the New Zealand snowboarder, was really tight on his. Yeah. here in Lark since January, it just went nuts. I had 10 days locked up in early January. And my wife and kids waited until that perfect moment two weeks before they had to fly home to get it. But oh, my god! They shifted yes. down from PCR tests to rapid antigen tests. So you can get a negative one of those. You'd say sort of 12, 13 days afterwards.
2: So, yeah, 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 they got true. home
1: fine in the end. Yeah, so they're
2: home now? In New Zealand, they've gone?
1: Yep, yep, um, they headed back.
2: When you were allowed home. Um, so let's go, let's touch on the Olympics, hey? So, I mean, it just happened. Beijing was huge. I loved it. It was good fun. A little bit controversial in some avenues for our Olympians. What was your take being there, standing on the ground and commentate, commentating for it? Was
1: well, um, I actually made the choice. We get given what's called the playbook in, I think it was the end of October. And I made the decision not to actually go. I sat in Manchester because the restrictions for the media going, we didn't have, if you're vaccinated, you didn't have to do the three 21 day quarantine, but I know some people who did do 21 day quarantines to go in,
2: wow.
1: which is pretty wild.
2: Sorry, in Beijing?
1: Uh, no, in 21? a facility. They had quarantine facilities for you. No, thanks so we you could get in but then once you're in as media you would you're only allowed in your hotel you you basically get on the venue shuttles so you leave you go to your venue and then you're shuttled back to your hotel so that's your existence and if anyone gets covid in the venue then you're all locked down for 3 days before you're tested again and if you're negative you have a first day and a third day test, and then you're allowed back into the venue. Just felt like, in my head, I was thinking, if I'm doing two weeks quarantine going back into New Zealand after that, you're almost doing five weeks quarantine. And having done two stretches of it in 2021, I did a month in quarantine in separate chunks. I wasn't too keen to repeat it. Yeah, good call. It's too many,
0: too many um, push ups and um, sit ups, isn't it? To you. <laughs> Yeah. You know, too much meditation. What else do you do? Run
1: a couple of shuttle runs from side to side? What do you? Well, I was doing Learned the first language. one. I did, Amazingly, the first time I did it was coming back in the winter of 2021. And I did, uh, I snapped nearly every ligament. in. I dislocate my kneecap, fractured my tibia and clean snapped my ACL and MCL. And
0: it would have looked like something uh, out of Monty Python.
1: Yeah, I was doing the Ministry of Silly Walks. And so it was the perfect place. I couldn't, I was lying around with my leg up wherever I was. So I did, I think I did two podcasts. I did three or four voiceovers, read a couple of books, watched all of The Mandalorian, a couple of really, I caught up on some old 80s films. So I was only masturbating six times a day.
2: (laughs) 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 That <laughs> would have I
1: been hard with an injury. No, <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was on RS, I did uh, RSIs, so. but that's what everyone's it, thinking, it isn't it? Kind of... <laughs> that's
2: right. Yeah,
1: right.
2: Oh, how did you do your injury? That was a that's a, a whole like that would have been a big crash, or I hope it was a big crash for all those. Um, oh, it was
1: it was heartbreaking. It was uh, over, we'd had over a metre, well over a metre of snow, close to a metre and a half of snow in six days. But it came down on almost nothing. And
2: yeah.
1: I'm just like a puppy, like anyone. I was just puppy dogging. <laughs> and I hit a massive tree stump square on the outside of my knee. And the bo- so the bottom part of my leg went one side of it and I went the other side of it and it just... Black flash, white flash. It was actually really. It was about as good as it could get. It was like huge flash of pain, and then nothing, because everything had snapped. All the tension had gone in the joint. But I reached down, and my kneecap was on the side of my leg. I was like, "Oh dear, this isn't." And I thought that was it to start with, and because there wasn't much pain, we and we were a fair way off piece. We did a doctor Google and found how how to relocate a kneecap.
2: So we did that.
1: And um, no, (laughs) I'm Dr. Google. The two two kids I was with were just, they were like, how are you doing this? They think I'm really hard now. But (laughs) the fact was, because there was no tension in the joint, it was really easy, but I haven't told them that. Um, But we popped it back in and I thought, I've got away with this. And I went to go and stand up and the whole thing just disappeared. I was like, oh, no, I haven't.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah! So you've got you've got stories on injuries as well. Far out! I I went down backwards and did my ACL in Canada and hit trees like down a ravine backwards. So I'm kind of happy. Mine mine's a happy story. I didn't do my head or my back. It was just my knee. I consider it a happy story. <laughs> yeah. that,
1: it's, I have exactly the same theory. I'm like okay, if it's not a spine or a head, then I'm we can yeah. fix this.
2: Can fix it. <laughs> yeah, and away we go. Away we go. So what about you? So you. When you first took your ski again, was it this season
1: in Europe where you are now, like early this year? No, no. I, my physio, I was so lucky. Like if you do a knee in a Swiss ski resort and you've got insurance, you, it's probably the best thing you can do. Mm. If you haven't got insurance, it's probably the worst thing you can do. <laughs> yeah. But I was covered and I got the surgery in Europe. I ummed and hard about it because I was, I was 10 days into shooting the BBC series oh, and it was the God. first time I'd been able to shoot anything in over a year it was kind of covid let out oh my God. and was just losing I might be like Ugh. 10 days into what a 52 day series shoot oh. I did this so I planned the surgery in between shoot dates and I didn't miss a show <laughs> but it was it was heavy going but knowing that I had that time I thought do I wait just leave this thing braced up and then get it done back in New Zealand where I'll know the surgeon and I can have all the follow-up. But again, if there were no guarantees. You thought they can just cancel elective surgery. And yeah. I'll, I could be waiting three or four months with like a dangly leg that doesn't do anything. Yeah. So I thought I'll get it done. And then being close to a lot of the teams, I, the British team called me as soon as they found out the Kiwis called me, they offered up physios and anything I needed so I had a bit of time with the Kiwi physios and one of the New Zealand physios had been the US men's alpine ski team knee specialist for decades.
2: Why would so, you go back
1: to New Zealand then? <laughs> no, no, she, but she, I didn't, I didn't hook up with her until I had the surgery, flew two weeks later and then started doing Zoom calls with her in MIQ in the quarantine facilities And then she's got me through the last year, and that's been incredible. Having someone with that level of experience was invaluable.
0: Yeah. 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 Hey, um, so we should I wouldn't mind your take on the Olympians, especially the Kiwi and the
1: Aussies. What's
0: going on there?
1: It's incredible, isn't it? I and they the thing that strikes me with all of them, they are. Like you're churning out these really talented athletes, but they're really, really good humans too. Like yeah. Tess Cody, Valu we've already talked about, Zoe sadowski Sinot, Tian Collins, Koreakoshima. There's there's some really, really rad humans coming out of the southern hemisphere. And my theory on it, I think you it's like it's it's never one thing, is it? But you've got Mountains with really quick laps. And I've seen this in the UK with snow domes. We've got a couple of really, really good kids coming through who set off in snow domes. Jamie Nichols was the first British guy to do it. And he just done hot laps in snow domes or on dry slopes where where there's no time frame. You can just bang, 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 bang. The Kiwis have got these southern hemisphere laps on shorter slopes with really good park facilities or pipes. So they're doing that. For four months of the southern hemisphere winter, but then they're doing the northern hemisphere winter, so they're yeah. getting their ten thousand hours quicker. There's also the broader perspective of kind of sporting culture in the southern hemisphere. You yeah. people take it seriously, so you see kids are getting good and they want to get good. They're dedicated. They've got a strong work ethic, and well, that's we- right the level's so high if you can be so talented but if you don't have the work ethic you're just not going to get there
2: yeah we learned a lot that when we did all the interview the olympic interviews they just give up everything everything they just give up everything and that is their sole focus and you know they give up their school they give up their friends they give up albeit they make new ones but it's such a big conquest for them to do it and that's and I think it has to be fun too do you think our we have a little bit of a piss take on life the Australians and New Zealanders and you know we take we want to get there we are determined but we're we're go lucky we're happy go lucky as well is that help or no I think
1: it, that depends on the person but and I think I think you have to have that definitely you see that in the successful ones but the system what's interesting you'll get that on a personal level but the system itself that's creating these kids is not it is it's cutthroat if you want to make it there are so you'll have pathway teams or development teams there are a lot of kids getting bottlenecked into those first cutoff points and it is cruel it is really hard you've got kids who are at an unbelievable level 13 14 15 and then the federation starts cherry picking who they want and this there's a lot of talent out there that's that's not getting picked up it used to be that in free skiing not so much alpine skiing but free skiing and snowboarding you'd have these a lot of funding from the industry the industry was quite rich so you could get sponsored even if you weren't going to compete but over the last 10 years steadily that's dried up the brands have less money Mm. and as a result if you don't make it in competition it's really hard to find a place in the industry. If you're in the States, where all the media and the brands are based, you can, you've got a, a chance in North we were America, actually, Canada. We were,
0: we were surprised when we interviewed a couple of the Olympians that there was a couple that didn't have sponsorship. That blew me away. I just yeah. at that level, someone hadn't grabbed them for some brand. And like you say, there's just not the money in the in the gear and everything. You'd think there would be money for sponsorship, even if it was something,
1: you know, goggles. Yeah. But, but in um, the, yeah, yeah, you'd struggle. You struggle to actually get people to give you all the hardware you need from within industry. And I imagine, like the Aussie or Kiwi federations, might be pain. But the, like you're probably not getting given any gear as a snowboard cross racer or a ski cross. I mean, racer. that just
0: blows me away. I mean, one pair of goggles, even just to kind of say you're a something snowboarder especially when the
2: coverage <laughs> the olympic coverage is on tv like channel yeah. seven our major network is doing the olympic coverage nbc in america not nbc what was in america mm, can't.
1: yeah on. it's nbc yeah
2: yeah yeah so i mean th- there seems to be money behind that but there doesn't seem to be money towards our athletes i wonder where that money goes
1: <laughs> well you, you mentioned it before to like i i ethically battle with the olympics Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe in their ability to inspire. I've seen it firsthand again and again and again. And I know what it means to people and that keeps me coming back. But the IOC's model is pretty difficult to reconcile. We've got well, biggest sponsorship deals in history, biggest TV rights deals in history. They operate tax-free in the venue country. So they're not paying tax on any of those. They have wow. a 75% volunteer workforce. The venue city pays for all of the locations. Apart from their admin costs and wage costs, their only big outlay is OBS, the Olympic Broadcasting Service. And if NBC are paying, the last deal I knew about with them, I think it was a three or four game deal from Vancouver to Rio. So Vancouver, London, Sochi, Rio was 2.2 billion. And it doesn't cost that much. It certainly doesn't cost that much to make a TV show. well the other thing that was
0: interesting with the with the athletes the other thing we picked up was we to Neil and I were both coming from a position of wow we've grown up watching the Olympics and it's very exciting and to us it's the pinnacle of you have made it if you go to the Olympic Games but they were very much there was a few there that would really say oh no I prefer the World Cup circuit or something else like it wasn't it wasn't as meaningful I mean it was meaningful maybe that's not the right word but there were more significant competitions to them as an athlete than the Olympic Games.
1: Out, out of out of interest, off the top of your head, do you put them in a decade? How old were they, the people who said that?
0: Uh, they were um, younger.
1: Uh, and had they, had they ever been before? Was it their first go? Do you think?
0: Yes, maybe once.
1: Yeah. See, in in theory, until you've been. When you come back and you see that everyone's dog, grandma, shop owner, like everyone in your local area knows who you are. So you have that lovely, like, oh my God, this this has made me really famous. This everyone saw this. And then you see that actually, if I do all right here, this can fund like this is the best top up that will keep me rolling in this game for another four years. And when that penny drops. Then for a lot of people they're like ah actually okay I get it now.
2: I'll go, again. I'll go again.
1: Yeah, a lot of athletes I know you kind of you basically you start smashing Visa or Mastercard to get there. It'll I reckon these days in Aussie dollars it's costing you 50, 60 probably to self fund. Federations will pick up a bit, but you've got to top it up. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, and if you go, you'll get that paid off. If you medal. Then yeah, forget about that. You're for the next ten years. You're probably going to be all right. You can live off that for a while. Um, You can buy a better can of baked beans. Exactly. Your your quality of baked bean goes up immeasurably. But it's whether you like. If the thing is, if you spend all that money trying to qualify and you miss, that's. And I know a few people who've done that, and it's it's a long, hard slog paying that debt off.
2: Yeah, for nothing, really. I mean, yeah, it's. And also it's four years. I think it could be a bit addictive. I think um we, we spoke to Brie Walker, the um our monobob um, yep. girl, and this was her first Olympics. And, you know, she was just like, yeah, we're raring to go, and she did really well at the Olympics. And then you speak to her now she's like, yep, Game on, I've got my eye on the prize, you know. So she's a little bit more addicted to it now that thrill, and you know, because it's not unless you're talking our community, you don't know what a crystal globe is, but everyone knows what an Olympic gold is. So
1: yeah.
2: I think it is like the pinnacle for the general public, but yeah, yeah, um,
1: exactly. It's because yeah. this is like for a lot of sports, this is literally when mainstream media, and I, I feel really. Cheated for the athletes
0: yes. in the southern
1: hemisphere because, like, it's very difficult to get an audience to switch on in the middle of summer and really get behind athletes when it's 30 degrees. You're like, oh, yeah, well, it looks pretty, doesn't it? Whereas in the northern hemisphere, everyone's in a dark winter and suddenly that you get these beautiful pictures. If you're in dark, damp Manchester and then suddenly you get these snow, blue skies. Dynamic athletes, it's a really easy sell.
2: Do you think the Homer Simpson smokestacks behind the uh, was a beautiful picture that everyone thought of winter? (laughs) A
1: a friend of mine described it as a dystopian hellscape. Yes. (laughs)
2: Bingo. (laughs) Well,
0: I felt sorry for our um, um, Paralympians because... While the Paralympians were on, we've had the most atrocious floods here on the north coast of New South Wales. And we're watching Channel 7 in the afternoon and you could just see on social media and the news and everything that people were too busy cleaning up floods, even in Sydney. I mean, it's just been, it was sad that we didn't have more attention in a way on the Paralympians. It was their time to shine and there were natural disasters. (laughs)
1: I feel very strongly about this. We have Channel 4 in the UK. There's a lot of government funding goes into it, but then Channel 4 back it as well. And the paras have the best campaigns in the UK. They push really hard, and there is primetime coverage on Channel 4 all the time. It's a completely disabled presenting force. Sean Rose, Adaptian. Like it is, it represents the 15% of injured or impaired people in the UK. But still, like there, and we have as a commentator, we have these seminars, and you walk through all of the um, like the terminology, how it needs to be referred to, and progressively how you, how people, how we as people can change language to break down barriers mm-hmm. and make sure that it's all integrated. And yet, the the games themselves segregate. So. We are—we call you have disabled people, but they are not disabled by their impairments or their injuries. No, they're disabled by attitudes and the environment Correct. that we have. So, what's the first and best thing we can do is integrate the two games. Why can't we do that? Like, okay. It feels it, like the mo- the moment you put them two weeks later, it feels like an afterthought. Like, yeah, some of the sports incredible. The stories are better. There's less ego. There's more yeah. access. Like those games in my mind I can't see that in I would be really disappointed if in two cycles time they're still separated
2: yeah true I think there'll be probably be a big push for that because they're on the same hills they're ski they're especially winter you know they are doing the same hill they're doing the same disciplines and they're doing you know they they're taking on downhill when they can when they're vision impaired that is Incredible to me, like I—I I mean,
1: exactly like you say. There's, there's a course setter on those slalom courses in between the hmm. two runs. Able-bodied, like that's literally all it is. Next day, boom, 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 do it. Yeah, yeah. Give exactly. them. It should be. There shouldn't be any segregation between those games. I feel. Yeah.
2: I'm starting it. I'm starting a petition. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's, um,
0: let's talk briefly just about the european um ski resorts that you're which ones are you loving which ones What? what's your favorites Ooh. and you're you're snowboarding the whole time are you or are you, you're switching between the two
1: no I, I ski every now and again if it's really icy for a really long time and there's no park or if it's just big blasting I'll i might jump on a set of skis but um with my knee the way it is i haven't done it this year but Um, I'm fascinated all the time. I get, I was looking at, I thought, I was talking to a friend last night and I said, I think there's like 550, 600 resorts in Europe and I must be clocking over 300. And he said, no way, there's 2,000. And I went and looked and sure enough, there are over 2,000 resorts through kind of, if you take in Andorra and the Pyrenees, then from the Alps in sort of southeastern corner curving up through switzerland austria right down into slovakia slovenia czech republic germany's got corners of them like it's and there are so many and that's what i love about i love australian and new zealand mountain culture but the fact that through the european Alps, you can speak five different six different languages you can eat loads of different types of food you can have Really mellow, laid back, kind of downtrodden resorts. You can go to the richest places on earth, pretty much. Yeah. Like, we lived in Verbier for a while. And I have a theory that I developed when I was doing seasons as a kid, sort of 18 through to 23, that the richer the resort, the more money is slipping through the cracks. So the better you can feed off the kind of whatever's going on. <laughs> no (laughs) yeah true it was it was was really easy you just like there's so much slush money lying around so you could kind of bounce off the bottom and snowboard every day and pick up money when you needed it make lunches for someone or dish pig somewhere but Mm. (coughs) excuse me the we lived in verbier for three years we went back with the kids before they started serious school age they were seven and nine and we went for a winter and ended up staying three years but it was there was so much money up there it was just a billionaire's kind of playground but there were at the same time there are a lot of really serious free riders because it's a really serious mountain you kind of you have giant mountains and there's just one cable car up it and no pistes. yeah so they you've got a couple of itineraries off it but that area is vast Mm. And the potential after three winters, I felt like I just got on the bottom rung of the ladder, sort of exploring it and starting to get my head around what it offered. And then so I've got I've definitely got unfinished business there. Gosh, that that's
0: interesting is- that you say that after three winters. We we were booked to go to Verbier um at the end of 2020, and of course we canceled. But I remember when we it took months to just look at the map going,
1: I don't know where to start. You can't ski to the other side of it in a day. And if you did, you couldn't well, you can't get back. So you could go to the other side of it and then you'd need you might get one or two resorts back and then you'd have to go to the valley floor and catch a train and a bus back. Yeah, yeah.
2: Incredible. We did um we did Italy and we did the Celeronda. Yeah. And we were like, Oh yeah, we're just gonna go on a quick trip, you know. And we get halfway through and they they were like, No, you can't go back, you just have to keep going now. And we were like Oh, my gosh. Like, it, it
1: was all good, but it was really quite icy. And, I went, I went and to a place O&J called <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the problem. With a lot of those oh. massive resorts, Yeah, the links are low and the lift systems are, are not up to scratch. So it, on paper, it looks great. So you've got to be really careful with that. Celeronda and Port de Soleil have a couple of really weak links like that. Yep. They're either lower or they're just bottlenecks where you've got a T-bar and then... First thing in the morning, last thing at night, the queues are just Matty. through the roof. So. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And the te- and your legs are killing too, you know, because you've, you've been, you know, you're in Europe, so you're on the Arprey and you so everything's a bit swollen. No, And I, then you've got I to went, ride.
1: <laughs> I went to a place called Andermatt last week to do this Red Bull event called Super Ski Cross. And they've just been bought by an Egyptian billionaire. He literally he was, he was flying over the resort and he looked at it. There'd been a military firing range up there and they had a couple, very similar to Verbier. They had two cable cars up one mountain and it was a north-facing bowl, free-riding paradise. But this Egyptian flew over it, Sami Sedaris, I think his name is. And they there'd been a firing range that had left town. So all of the army had gone. And the t- in the 90s, the town nearly closed. And he saw this kind of nearly shut down village. He's like, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to turn it into the best resort in the world and he started vale resorts injected 150 million francs into it last monday yes. and they've got vast but coming back to your point about the apre you can kind of in there there's two other resorts cedron and dissentis and they have an apre ski train so you ski from andermatt all the way out to the other end and then you get on the train and you apre all the way home i mean what
2: what doesn't sound good about that <laughs> Like, seriously. Why stop drinking and in civilised, doesn't up. it? <laughs> yeah. So uh, what your thoughts on Vale, pumping in their $150 million. This is 40. their first into Europe?
0: Well, because, I mean, it the, it is a controversial topic, isn't it, the whole Vale resort. Well, I mean, uh, well every, okay. you know, all of us that are old enough to visit all these resorts before they get veilified knew what they were like before, and then we visit them afterwards, and they're just different. They are different. You know, some yeah, really
1: you're sterilizing local culture is the cost. Yeah. Yeah. So I've said, Larks is a fantastic example of this. So if you go to, let's say you go to uh, Cortina um, yeah. or that's Celeronda, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it is. Love Cortina. Yeah, so
1: go to the Celeronda. There are 150 landowners who own the lifts through that system. So, the lift, like, imagine trying to get something done there to upgrade one landowner's lift. Exactly what we just talked about, these shonky lifts that create weak connections in big areas. Vale Resorts end that. Yeah. But it is at the cost of that lovely local... Um, feeling that you get you ride around the cellar under. It's there's a lift in the cellar under, isn't there where you still pay individually you have to put like two yep. euros in the pot
2: yeah you do yeah yeah there is there is because it's in the middle of no man's land and you just go what what do I have to do and they're like yeah because I mean you don't speak English um, you don't speak the language because it's dialect it's not even a real like even if you speak Italian or you Italian, speak yeah yeah it's it's dialect so they don't you're speaking your best Italian and they're like I don't even know what you're saying <laughs> it's probably really bad anyway but But it's funny, though, because I think what happens with the veil is I love that they improve all the systems and they do all that, but I feel like they lose their customer service, which is why we all fell in love with the mountains in the first place and skiing. Because, you know, if you work in ski resorts like we all did, you could fix a problem, you could help a problem, but now you just got to wait 10 days because you're in a central system over there to kind of get your system, get your problem worked out. And I think think if they fix that, then there'll be a lot better If they don't take that to Europe, they keep the European feel and the local culture. That'll be brilliant. Well,
0: it's a bit like the whole um, uh, what is it, Club Med? You know, some people say go to Club Med all over the world. You know what you're getting. You're having that experience. You're having a McDonald's. You're eating McDonald's. You know that (laughs) experience. But yeah, and I'm
1: sure why fly? Why why bother traveling? You can like (laughs) do the same thing at home. You're not seeing any culture. Not and that's a really good point. Larks is where I am now is a fascinating example. So I came here first time in 1999, and it was a car park and a couple of lifts, but there wasn't much here. But the what happened was, and it's really unique in this sense, the Gertner family owned it. And they were the father died unexpectedly, really young, I think in his late 50s. And the two sons, who were like 25 and 28, inherited a ski resort. And the older brother at 28 was like, he'd got a really successful meatpacking business here. Like he ran the butchers for the Canton and he's like, I don't need that. That's a headache. Reto Gertner had been, Reto, the younger brother had been in San Francisco studying business at university. And he came back, he'd seen surf and skate culture in the nineties in California. Yeah, And he, he was a snowboarder. He was like, I'm going to turn this into a snowboarder's resort. And the Vice Arena Group are like Vale Resorts. So he owns the land, he owns the lifts, and he can build the hotels and the bars up. So he took this culture as his central spine of everything he did. And the snow parks, the bars, the restaurants, everything is built around snowboarding and freestyle skiing. And this theme runs through it. And when you, like the culture, when I come here as a snowboarder, I'm home everyone's young everyone's got and now we're in the second third fourth generation of snowboarders this is where all the kids want so if you're a parent your kids want to come here they don't want to go to kids where there's just flat pieces where uh, oh well i mean if you've got kids are into alpine skiing they want to go there but there's we've got the freestyle academy here is two football pitches of skate ramps trampolines parkour courses then you've got this incredible mountain with seven snow parks. And then the guy who came in as the CEO had done a degree in industrial design. So everything you touch, his thing was creating this theme of the way something feels or looks. So you've got this really beautiful feeling, this theme running through the whole thing, really eclectic art. There's good DJs and they celebrate the culture. Yeah, And it's not cheap but if you want to experience freestyle in its purest form, you come here. And it and it fascinates me that Vail Resorts haven't come here because when the boys were trying to work this out, they went to Woodward in the States because they said to Woodward, Hey, we want to build Woodward here. And they were like, Hey, we don't franchise. We are Woodward. We don't do this. So they were like, okay. They went on holiday to Woodward, Pennsylvania and just took photos of everything, came back and recreated it. But why wouldn't Vale Resorts now come here and go, okay, we've got loads of family ski resorts. Let's put a different offering in to some of the places and try and build this. Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's like there's um, a restaurant chain around here, the boathouse, and when they only had one, you walk in, it's experience and it's beautiful and everything. Now they've done, there's probably done about five of them, and it's that's you walk in and you go, I thought it was beautiful when there's one, but now there's five, they're all the same. I guess some people, it's just catering to a certain traveler, isn't it? Some people just like that experience of knowing that they they know what they're getting with a Val Resort. And I mean, it all stems from the past though. It's all about the you've got the past because I do have a, you know, an epic pass. And you get that pass. I mean, last year we skied for 30 days and you just can't beat the value. So that's, you're getting the value, but then you're, you're just not getting those local little wonder. Results. I wonder when, yeah.
2: they, when they thought they were buying Perisher that they could somehow make a little bit of wood, wood at Perisher because there is areas that you can make and control on our mountains that actually suit quick laps. So when they put in, like we used to have a tea bar and everyone's like, well, why would you move a tea bar? We get so much wind in Australia, we need a tea bar but then they whacked in a chairlift, you know, a cord chair. And that just does laps around our little hot laps of um the jumps and the kind of freestyle park. There's no half-pipe over that way, but I'm sure they could make one if they wanted to, but, you know. But I wonder if that's their thoughts. Um, you've really got me thinking differently about that now. Like what, it's, why, it's, they, why they buy I'm, those resorts. Like that's really, um,
1: yeah. It, it blows my mind. Lark's is making money hand over fist i hosted a sustainable innovation summit here last week and they're putting in this summer the world's first ropeway taxi they call it so the cable car the gondolas come into the lift station and they stop they've each gondola has a little essentially a tesla motor on the top of it that as the gondola slows down or comes down the hill through each of the pylons, it charges that motor. And then when the gondola arrives in the station, it wheels itself to a door and then stops. Then you get in that door and you program where you want the lift to go. And there are eight stops as it winds its way up the mountain and you get in and tell the lift where you want to go. So it'll go through each station and then it will wind like... It how far are we talking? Like <laughs>
2: kilometre like like Europe, like you're going a kilometer up the hill or no? How, this
1: how- is going probably if you went to the furthest station that they're planning to put in this year, it'd be about seven or eight kilometers. Oh, wow. Yeah. But in they're thinking of using it to link to another town, which would probably put it at twelve or thirteen. Oh
2: man, million. I'm hoping that's charged really well and I get the seven Ks. <laughs> because it's a long way to fall well, no, from
1: no because once it ca- so it, it, it does its little electric motor while it's in the station and yeah. then it joins the cable uh, when it, okay. um, when, okay, it okay. when it goes up but what it means is you're not it's not you you haven't got dead cable cars going up and down so hundreds and hundreds of tons wasting kilowatts gigawatts yeah. of power so yeah. the lift is only working when it's working and it's it's fascinating,
0: Danielle. Uh, you and I did. When was it? Last year, the year before, we did a uh, an episode on sustainability, and the and I love how the Europeans are really nailing it yeah. for examples. Right? I mean, what else are you seeing for for what we? You know, we're dragging our heels over here in the southern
1: hemisphere. It's the the resorts are going crazy. So, um, I met a woman from Davos. They reckon they'll have solar wind and hydro powering the whole lift system in the next two years uh have a solar array on the glacier so it's protecting the snow from the ice from melting and it's providing power for the lifts you've got uh this i can't remember the name of it there's an austrian resort because trains alpine trains are a thing if you come by train you can hand your car key like you show your train receipt when you arrive and you get a 25% discount on your lift pass. Uh, There's free electric charging stations. If you come with an electric car to a lot of the resorts and hand in your keys, when you get there, then you'll get discounts on your lift passes. Uh, Lark's here have 80% renewable energy. The Peaston Bullies, they've got the 600E is a hybrid one that reduces its output. I think it's 25% at the moment, but they're working on better ones. All of the buildings have solar power on top of them. And then they're looking, the lift company Bartolet that I saw talk, are looking at these, right, if we can use the weight of the lifts, like uh, like Tesla's use their braking systems, let's use the power, that inherent power that we've got in the lifts to work out more efficient ways to run them. So the, one of the most impressive things though, is a lot of the, the recycling over here is huge. Mm. So, if you're in a hotel room that's got a Nespresso machine, you'll have a little Nespresso pouch thing that actually, they say those things can't be recycled. They've worked out how to do it here, melting them. And we're seeing, uh, so you can do batteries, aluminium, all plastics, um, porcelains, cardboards, papers. There's eight different recycling bins that you can use. So, and then food waste is measured at different weeks of the year. And they've got algorithms now that work out how many guests you have, so how much food needs to be ordered to reduce the waste as well. So, like, really, really strong initiatives now.
2: We are still trying to work out how to get rid of sewage in our resorts, (laughs) you know, efficiently do that. We are so far behind. It's like, and, you know, I really love our pygmy possums, but I figure a lot, they've had a lot of money spent on them already now. You know, we need to start probably looking at, all these other elements of how we can actually recycle in our ski resorts because it is the most pristine areas in your country. Like, well, we have the Great Barrier Reef as well. But (laughs) but it's
1: As you say, I I call it getting high. The moment you get to a higher latitude or a higher altitude, you're seeing the worst effects of climate change. Like mountains are going to be gone really soon. If they're, like, it's going to be really, fresh snow is going to be, a thi- like the rarest commodity yeah. because the like another two or three degrees and that that freezing level will have risen and we're going to be on blown snow all the time like that's you the only way more, the can survive
2: are you seeing it more in europe than new zealand
1: this Where winter i saw something i've never seen in europe usually you have a dry season at one end and the other end will get snow you're in austria and it's dumping in france or italy Yep. This winter, there's been no snow anywhere. there's I reckon there's been five storms, and the snow that we that we've got coming down now is the first snow since the 22nd of February. No, Very that's not natural. true. We had one weird storm in early March, but it's barely snowed. It's just been sunny, cold. They blew enough snow at the start of the season. They had low enough temperatures, but it just hasn't snowed. Yeah
2: so no snow anywhere like when you've got the snow falls normally you get 30 45 centimeters out of a storm
1: how it's ticking away all winter like sometimes you get winters where it'll snow a meter every week for five yeah. weeks sometimes it just trickles in in little batches but watching it melt away this year showed you how little we actually had because artificial snow the flakes don't, they're, they're much smaller flakes. They don't have the kind of fronds that you have on a normal flake. So there's no air trap there. So it bonds like concrete and it melts slower. So, but where there's where there's no artificial snow on the sides of the piece, it's bare at the end of March. And a lot of people will be, a lot of resorts want to run their seasons past Easter. So there's two weeks either side of Easter. So minimum first week of April, middle of April.
2: Yeah, wow! So, are you allowed to pump out the snow still? Is the temperature allowing to man-made snow early in the season for the whole time?
1: No. no. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's, so the temperature still snow. cold.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, it is now, but it's been cooking. Like we were in hoodies by late February at one stage, and it's been up and down a little bit. But
0: yeah. yeah. Well, want to ask you about um, New Zealand resorts? Pick your brain on your favourites
1: oh it's
0: what do you like Being it a one- well, it
1: depends what you're going for they do this is it's really interesting what we talked about with larks the new zealand resorts do really well i think for building their own characters number one on my list my favorite resort and it's not for everyone but the way i like to ride and what i want i love oh how uh is that a club
2: lodge, though? Is it is it accessible to the normal, everyday Australian?
1: No, it's not a club field. So, yeah, anyone can go. It's an hour, about an hour and 45 minutes north of Wanaka. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, because you cut round from Queenstown, it's not that much further. It's probably two and a quarter hours from Queenstown. And the lodge at the bottom of the hill is run by Mike and Louise. And so it's got exactly what you talked about, Emma. It's total family feel. And it's like a Frank Lloyd Wright building built in the 70s, floor to ceiling windows, looks up Lake Ojo, straight up to Mount Cook. The sun bounces off the west face of Mount Cook and reflects down the lake at sunset. The food is out of this world and you're on the lakeshore. And then it's a 20 minute drive up the road and it's this steep veed valley. It's only one lift up there. But it's like the US Alpine Team trains slalom up there. There's plenty to test you if that's what you want, and then you you can hike off the top, and then there's bowls, bowls and, bowls and bowls and bowls out the sides of it. And we go with a crew of friends each year for three or four days, like, and it's it's just glorious. And I live in Wanaka, so I've got Cadrona and te- Treble Cone on my doorstep, mm. but. As a kind of removing yourself from the mayhem of those hills and just having, it's a really lovely pace of skiing. I love it up there. there. That's one of my happy places.
2: You can stay there at the base of that hill, or do you have to drive from Wanaka every day, or you can stay in that?
1: No, no, you stay at the base in the lodge there. And they've got, do you you take a
2: backcountry guide with you? If you're going, it's like, you know, when you need, everyone needs a backcountry experience. They should be, you know, they should have their avalanche one at least. Yeah. Is there is there guides that can take you and explore with you or do you need to know, do you need to be local to really get the best out of it?
1: Uh, I don't know where you'd rent a guide. You could probably, I'm sure if you asked, you could get one, but it's one of those, there's certain resorts in New Zealand where it gets really complex and you need to know and there are guides that you can use, but Ohau's kind of speak and spell. If you can see it, you can ski it kind of thing. So you can work it out and... I would never advocate following tracks, but there it's fairly straightforward and you can't get yourself into too much trouble. You could well, you could end up walking for a long way because a lot of people tour up there. But
2: I've got a follow track story that my husband took us on in Austria that was fun in Seoul. Oh, look, no one's skiing
1: there. (laughs) This this applies only to Ohau, like in Europe. Following tracks is probably the stupidest thing you can do. One of the most frightening days I ever had, I followed tracks in a resort I didn't know, and it turned out to be a speed flyer. That was an hour and a half walk out. That was <laughs> yeah. my lesson. Yeah, I came I, across uh, a 180-foot cliff.
2: <laughs> pretty much we really, We were down a waterfall. We, like, it was ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> and I was sweating. I was about as red as what I am now at the end of it coming out, just like, oh, my, yeah, it was... I was like, I think I'm going to kill you, Darren. I think I might even have a cigarette because that's what they're all doing in Austria and I don't smoke. I was thought yes, so like, I'm going to die. They've
1: only <laughs> just banned smoking in bars, haven't they?
2: So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's out of control too, isn't it, really? Like, gosh, sorry. Um, So have you ever skied? <laughs> the, um, you know what surprised me the most ever in New Zealand was Papa. Have you? That blew my mind how steep, it was to the right-hand side, and the lodge at the top. And no, it's just the it, facilities there for this North Island. You know, no one goes there, but it was incredible. I loved it, and Taroa. you know, uh,
1: yeah, Toroa is terrifying mountain in some respects and brilliant in others. I mm-hmm. when I when the kids were learning, we were living in Auckland, and I think the kids are like two and four or three and five, and um, took them down there. And Sean, my wife, was so pumped on it. She was like, yeah, this is where I learned to ride. And I got there. They can't piece anything because it's jagged volcanic rock that will tear a piece and bully to pieces. <laughs> Every Because it's New Zealand, no one gets lessons. They're all like, she'll be right, I can I can get this. And everyone bottlenecks at the end of the day onto a four-metre-wide path, careening out of control. I was, I was, in, I was just like, oh, my God, where are we? This place is... And she just said, if you can, at the end of the day, my wife, Shanda just said, if you can ski or ride to Rowa, then you can ski or ride anywhere. And I genuinely think that's true.
2: I reckon that's true. We had one of the most amazing days at Fakapapa. We went up the next day and the death cookies were massive. Like they were just ice cookies. And Darren and I both went, what happened? What happened? Did the volcano go off again? Then we didn't know. Like it was just, just such huge variance to conditions overnight. It was but fun. The scenery there is incredible. Like New Zealand's yep. scenery is amazing.
0: New Zealand yep. scenery is am- amazing, but I really put in the negative column that you can't stay at the bottom of, uh, at the top of some of those resorts. That's a because re- I went up there before I had kids and did the whole motorhome thing and didn't do my research and just arrived there at 10 o'clock at night and the guy was like, nah. can't you can't stay up here so that's I haven't taken the kids there because I just don't want to have to do that
1: yeah it's it's really hard and I think with young kids that's probably the most off-putting thing is that you can't get kids dressed up in ski gear and then put them in the car for half an hour it's really hard but it's they yeah that I'd say that's the one downside in terms of facilities you look at them and TC is a really good free-riding mountain. On its day with good snow, it's as good as anywhere. cadrona has got a world-class park and freestyle. Um, Remarks has got a mixture of those two. Coronet is Alpine skier's dream. And to be fair, on it, whatever you're into, I think Coronet's terrain for kind of peace blasting is second to none. It's got that yeah. lovely big rolling terrain that you can fly around. And then I mean, I've got friends who've been up to Roa, Fakapapa Papa and um Ruapehu. Just yeah. and you'll see it if you've got the time, if you get that, that volcano right, yeah. it can be unbelievable. Yeah. Um truly amazing.
2: So do you like Mount Hart? I I like it. So- Small doses, it can be Mount Shut is what I call it because every time I've been there, it has gone on wind hold or they've never let you up. But you might get three days out of your five at Mount Hutt. But it is an incredible hill when you're there. The Virgin Mile across, you know, the right-hand side, it's like, oh.
1: Yeah. That's it. It's I always feel like it's quite an exposed hill. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit kind of softer in its profile. It's not as jagged as some of the, the resorts further south. So it does get hammered in that respect. But... As you say, yeah, they've all got their, their attributes. I don't think like, and then, as you said, the club fields, like, you can have a lot of fun, and the club fields, interestingly, won't turn you away in a camper if you can get it up the road, but <laughs> there will be a lot of people hate you if you take a camper up those roads.: um.
0: So um, tell us a bit about your next adventure, natural selection, and the relevance the why we love the natural selection tour and
1: why people should. Um, wow, it's well it's my dream job. I've been working in this industry for what twenty-five plus years. And we talked about the pitfalls of the Olympics and that kind of really hard system of you've basically got ride slope style big air, half pipe, ski cross, snowball cross, like those Olympic sanctioned mm-hmm. events or you can't make it we've been crying out for something in snowboarding a different format that offers what an experience closer to either what people want to do or what people are yeah I suppose what people aspire to do on a snowboard and it's this backcountry format it's called natural selection Travis, one of the greatest of all time came up with the idea and it's You you build a couple of jumps up, you build landings where you need them on an agreed face, and then you just let it snow in. The first stop's in Jackson Hole, second stop to the cat skiing operation in British Columbia called Bald Face, and then the third stop, they go up to Alaska. And the Alaskan leg happened a week ago, but they can't broadcast live from up there. They're camping on a glacier for eight days. So instead, they edit the show, and they didn't have... The regular guy couldn't do the gig, so I get to go over on my way home to New Zealand. I'm stopping off in LA and I get to commentate on that. So
2: I hope you do a really, good job. Really you probably want to do it again.
1: <laughs> well, that's you can you kind of hope it's an audition, but at the same time, it's when I'm commentating to at the Olympics, it's predominantly for a mainstream audience. So you're not gonna get pulled up as much, you can have a lot more fun. And you can really relax and enjoy yourself. This, the audience for natural selection, is the really dedicated, passionate snowboarders. You make a mistake, you don't do it right, you're gonna get, you're gonna know. So, in that respect, it's probably one of the most, and I I love snowboarding. So the idea of getting lambasted by the core of the sport I love is terrifying. (laughs) True, true. Yeah, I'm I'm doing a fair bit of research.
2: I was going to say, how do you keep up with the Olympics? Because they, they at the Olympics, they did all these tricks that no one had ever seen before. How do when you're commentating? How are you keeping up? Are you just like, oh my gosh, okay, I don't even know how you call the twists and everything? They happen that fast in all the moves. As a commentator, have you got a list of the? Or you you just watch it religiously? You understand? Got a little picture picture next to the name.
1: (laughs) No, as long as you're watching, then it makes sense. Because if you've watched that person ride, like halfpipes, a brilliant example. I've watched Scotty James's run develop from Vancouver all the way through. I've watched Scotty like I and I write it down each winter. It took me until 2014 to start making spreadsheets that I would update religiously after each event. I wasted so much data before that, but I now have giant individual bios for everyone and our pipe riders slope riders are write down their runs their best runs each winter and then you can see where they're building what they're changing what they're tweaking mm. and as i get older yeah you start to you start to see between the cracks you can start to look at the matrix of how the judges are working and how the judges are, are the riders respond to the judges calls so you can and once you start getting that you can start to link everything together and that's when you can You've cracked the matrix and you can explain it on that level. You understand it so deeply, then you can explain it really simply. And you can say, he's developed this trick because the judges want to see this. Or this guy's taking off on his toe edge and spinning down the pipe. So Scotty's developed this trick, switch off his heels because it's totally different and the judges are going to love it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you don't have that, do you, on your um, natural selection tour? You are just pretty much crawling as it's going on, or yeah, but- because it, they because if they miss that trick, the idea is to hit. So they build the tricks, like you were saying. Sorry, so their idea is to hit every trick on that way down on that run. This purpose-built trick on the down the hill of Jackson.
1: It's maybe a four hundred meter wide slope. Yep, and they can hit anything they want. It's natural terrain with yeah. fresh powder snow on it. So there's no rules. And that's the thing. They're, they're trying. The judges are doing something completely new there. And so are the riders. And they've had, it's only been running two years. It's now, we're coming to the end of the second season. Yeah. And it's still a work in progress. So in traditionally in freestyle, you'd work with the acronym DAVE, Difficulty Amplitude variety and execution is the rough guide that the judges are using on this one they were using dave and it wasn't working so now they've come up with credo which is creativity risk execution difficulty and overall so but it's like people fall more in the backcountry and a fall won't end your run at natural selection so it's get it just getting your head around that i'm so used to like someone falls that's game over yeah in this like a fall if it's a hand drag or a bum down it's not going to affect you if it's a big tomahawk it might yeah Uh, Yeah.
2: so how big what's the cheapest gonna
1: be interesting
2: yeah will be i've watched a couple we, we interviewed robin she was amazing but I can't, I haven't seen, I've only actually seen the bald face. I, want, I will ski there. That's a goal of mine is to go ski bald face. But, you know, it's invitation only and pay pay lots of money. But, well, no,
1: it's, but, it's not invitation only. You can go on the wait list. Oh. But, yeah, all of the good times of the year are, they, previous guests have the first opportunity, first refusal on those spots, and they yes. very rarely come up. It's very difficult to get in there. Don't
2: worry, it's on my list. It's on a goal. Yeah, You've got an in now, mate. You are like, you're just commentating Alaska and like, oh, I'd love to be at Ford Face.
1: (laughs) I don't think it works like that. I've emailed them a few times, kind of dropping really unsubtle hints that like, kind of, do you know who I am? (laughs) Never goes anywhere.
0: I was tempted. This guy doesn't
2: know who he is. I think it was a
0: couple of years ago. I think Robin was running a women's week, and I and I was I looked at that closely and emailed, and I was like, oh, but yeah, it wasn't the right time. But yeah, I should have should have jumped on that. But um, yeah, well, we've got lots more to ask ask you, but um, you know, conscious that maybe our listeners wouldn't want to sit here for three hours like we would.
2: Uh, We have you back. We could talk yeah. again. I've got more to ask, especially on your I'd commentary. Like, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we kind of we always end up with our guests of, of saying, "Where is your favorite place to snowboard in the world?"
1: Ooh, that's a really tough one. I've been to Alaska seven times, and the experience, experiences I've had there, uh, are pretty. Unbeatable, riding really steep terrain like that. But equally, if I if I had to go for a resort, it would be here in Larks. The family memories that I have here, and the fact that everyone, no matter what age, what ability in the family, loves coming here. That we come back to that cultural touch point. But yeah, I'd say Alaska if it was just me on my own with an unlimited budget. <laughs> <laughs>
2: With part of alaska a heli skiing or would you go just go to alaska
1: <laughs> uh no i'd go to haines uh little kind of hippie fishing t- like it's full of hippies and fishermen and they've got a couple of really good heli operations great guides who know the area around there and it gets pretty incredible
2: yeah sounds amazing that's another goal got lots of goals <laughs> i'm running out of age <laughs> I <laughs>
0: know. We all need about three lives, don't we? That's what we're prioritising our health to make sure we can. We want to be still doing it when we're ninety-five.
2: Yeah. Well, it was. Thank you, and it was really unreal to talk to you. I mean, honestly, we're we're, we're the hacksy. You're the real deal. So <laughs> no, <laughs> but amazing. I really want to get into deeper and learn more about it. But you haven't had quite the life. So hey, I'll be. I'll be watching you on. Um, what your ski some days can we get that in
1: australia can we how do we no it's geo block because it's race rights the first half of the show is race rights but get yourself a good vpn you'll find us i can do
2: that can do
1: that and it's like it does on uh, my true belief with snow sports is that it doesn't matter what you do or where you go it's the passion that counts and you ladies have it in spades so hats off to you, <laughs> thank, you.
2: thank you thank you very much we've got to have
0: something to put on our epitaph you know? Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and If you've learned a handy tip or two then happy days To catch all our episodes subscribe on iTunes It's free Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leads a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social
2: media.